The Crux of the Matter, Episode 28, Preaching the Law, Part 2. Hello and welcome to The Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hello, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing great, Todd. It's sunny and I'm loving it. Yeah? So does it mean sunny in 80 or sunny in 110? Um, It's more like – it's closer to 80 than 110. How about you? Yeah, I'm just looking here. It's 104 here right now. Okay. We're definitely on the closer to 110 range of things. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. It's warm here, so it's probably higher than 80, but um, I don't think it's maybe close to 90. Yeah, there you go. Life goes on. Yep. So we um we had a what I thought was a very interesting discussion last week on preaching the law, and we're going to continue that in a moment. But before we do that, uh, what are you teaching this week? What do you uh, kind of what's what's foremost in your mind right now in teaching? Well, as you know, as I think I mentioned before, I'm teaching this uh, class of nurses right now, nursing students. I'm teaching bioethics for healthcare professionals. Right. And I did my last class of the term, if you will, the summer term right. uh, last Tuesday. And so I wanted to talk about the future of medicine and the f- where, where sort of the future of, of uh, biology is going. And I taught them about transhumanism. Are you familiar with transhumanism a little bit? Only from science fiction. Only from science fiction. Well, that's probably as good a place to go as any. Transhumanism is the belief that we as human beings will be able to use technology to sort of uh, fast forward the processes of of evolution and that we will be able to take a leap eventually into something that would be considered post-human. Basically, what they're saying is that we're developing – technologies like nanotechnology and robotics that we're going to be able to in AI and we're going to be able to use those things and do genetic engineering and use pharmaceuticals to enhance human beings to such a point that we will surpass you know the the imagination and and that's where science fiction comes in but if you listen to these these transhumanist thinkers like Raymond Kurzweil or Gregory Stock they sound like they're uh, science talking science fiction when in fact they're hmm. they're actually projecting what they think is is going to actually happen. Yes. Huh. Well, and, two two things yeah. pop into my head here, Scott. First, um, what is the relationship between transhumanism and eugenics? So that's kind of question, number, and I don't know if you have an answer to that or not. That's just what popped into my yeah, head. I do. All right. So so answer that one real quick. It's, it's very similar. It's a type of eugenics because along with nanotechnology and robotics and AI is they're looking at genetic science. So it, it is about making better human beings, make, you know, discerning. I mean, the difference is that in American eugenics, the, the American eugenics movement, which was actually started in America and is then taken up by the Germans. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to start in about – wasn't Margaret Sanger a part of yeah, the eugenics yeah. movement? She, she was. She was. Yep. Um, but at the time, at, we're talking you know, the 19-teens and 20s. It was, it was very much in vogue amongst the intelligentsia in America. Teddy Roosevelt was a eugenicist. Um, I mean it wasn't just kind of people like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Right. But what the American eugenicists theorized – the German eugenicists 
put into action. Put into put into place. Gotcha. They put into place. And what the American eugenicists talked about was um, at, at the minimum sterilizing what they would consider unfit for reproduction. You know, those races or those human beings that they thought had traits that should not be carried on to have a healthy society. Okay. And but some American eugenicists were actually positing euthanasia, euthanizing, but they were thinking like you know, like people in insane asylums and criminals and and so they can't reproduce. And um hmm. so there is whereas the transhumanists aren't aren't at all suggesting that we should euthanize people or sterilize them so they can't reproduce. But it, you know, if if some of their technologies do come to pass, like they think they will, then it does raise the question of what about those who don't want to go along with this, and will yep. they be treated as lesser human beings somehow? Right. Well, so so that brings me to my my next point or my next observation was I don't know if you remember Scott. Maybe we talked about it on the show. I don't remember, but. But one of my favorite kind of early science fiction authors is a guy named E. E. Doc Smith. Yeah, and you've mentioned him. I think I have. And 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 if you're kind of kind of interested in this transhumanism stuff and you want to trace it, oh, you got to read this guy because because he wrote yeah. this series in the th- 30s, 40s, and maybe into the early 50s. Okay, so that era, um, and it was called the Lensman series. And, right. and essentially it it was talking about transhumanism before transhumanism was a term. Yeah. That and and has some interesting parallels to the kind of um Green Lantern mythology that there's a super a super race of people that send out um that send out these devices that allow protectors so this sort of stuff. So it, okay. it's not just comic book sort of things, although it's similar. But it has some amazing similarities to what you're just describing about how how humanity is going to change and how a a device of some sort or another can can actually sort of jumpstart the evolutionary process. I really gotta get it. Yeah. Well, you know, and and what makes this actually worth talking about in in a classroom on bioethics is that I'm not just talking about sci-fi authors. Right. I'm talking about Oxford University, MIT, Stanford University, UCLA. I mean, Carnegie Mellon, the the highest level universities in the world have institutes, have well-funded programs and have scholars who are devoting themselves to figuring out the next stage of human evolution and how we can uh, be a catalyst, create a catalyst right. for and, that. And perhaps even shape it in some capacity Yes. Oh, absolutely. Another. Absolutely. Hmm. Without, without much caution. And it's, 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 uh, it's definitely concerning. Yeah. Interesting. But I'm going to, I'll look up E.E. E. Doc Smith. I just wrote it down. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll try see if I can put some of that stuff in the show notes um, because okay. it is it is quite interesting and I believe most if not all of it is public domain. So oh, I think okay. I think that I can find them maybe on Project Gutenberg. That's probably mm-hmm. the most likely place. I'll dig around a little bit, see what I can find. Okay. Um. So what are you teaching? Yeah. So I'm kind of slowly getting back <laughs> into the saddle after being on vacation more or less for a month. Uh, this this past Sunday, I, uh, I I continued my class, which I've been doing for a while, on angels and demons. And this morning, I began a uh, one of my men's classes is doing a four week study of the Book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And and Ruth is is always an interesting book to me. I I don't know how many times I've taught Ruth, probably half a dozen in different ways or another. But it's always such an interesting book to me because it is such a book of of reversals and such a book of uh, I, I don't know. It's it, it it always reminds me of the Magnificat that uh, that the one that shouldn't be faithful is faithful. And the in the ones that uh, the ones that have no reason to uh, to expect good receive it. It's just it has lots of interesting theology, the cross, and kind of theology of reversal language. Uh, you know, Ruth the Moabitess is the one who uh, you know your people will be my people and your God my God, etc. So that's it's kind of fun to get into this book, and it's also nice because I can. At this point in my ministry, I can basically go in and read this book and sort of riff off it without a yeah. whole lot of preparation. And I don't mean I don't prepare. I mean I've been preparing 20 years for it. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. so, that's, so that's fun to be able to go in and teach something that is relatively easy, that it's, it's quite clear and easy to, to, uh, to see Christ in the text, at least in my mind. Um, and it's good, it's good stuff. So that's been fun. I wish it wasn't at 6.30 in the morning, but – that's life. Well, what's uh, what led you to? Because I don't know that I've seen a whole lot of pastors do Bible studies on Ruth, and you say you've taught it several times. Is it just a book that you find to be very conducive to teaching? And well, I mean, it it's has a, good a number length. of things that lend itself to it. First of all, it's short; it's four yeah. chapters. Um, it is. It is a very. It, it, it's a clear narrative. Yeah. You know, so you're not reading twenty x chapters of Judges. Um, it's a, it's a, it's got a nice beginning, middle, and end. So it's very well put together from a literary point of view, which I think makes it makes it easily accessible to the hearer. Um, I can, you know, you can tell the story and you can insert and kind of discuss as many historical or geographic or theological or you know, etymological things as mm-hmm. you want. So, um, so today, for example, I'm not looking at the at the book right now. We we had an interesting discussion about how um, how the how the language of Naomi was was that that she she said something along the lines of uh, "May the Lord" and the ESV has "May the Lord deal kindly with you." Well, that's she's not actually asking that God would be nice to her. Uh, the word there is chesed. I mean, that's the, that's the word for uh, for mercy, grace. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. translates steadfast love. I mean, that is a rich covenant language word. She is not just saying, "I really hope God's nice to you." You're right. So that's a right. perfect example of something that's easy to easy to unpack and bring to people that uh, that that I think is quite accessible. It's fun. I've as I said I've probably taught it half a dozen times, and I've always yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, neat. Yeah, yeah. So I'll probably talk about it again here in the next few weeks. We'll see what other little uh, little bits we're able to uh, glean out of that, so to speak. Yeah, it's worth doing. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to our topic at hand here a little bit and see what we can come up with. Um, our topic continuing is preaching the law, and we had some great questions from last week about uh, uh, about sort of soft law, why is it that 
that preachers tend to uh, try to gum people to death with law that isn't too sharp, but just sharp enough in their minds. Um, as we look, as at least as I looked at this a little bit, a little bit more afterwards, there were a couple questions that I think are worth our our exploration here for a little bit this morning. And if you got something more, Scott, by all means, go for it. Uh, the first away. is the is the perennial question of use versus function. What is it? Um, and when I was taught the catechism in the mid eighties, it was early eighties. It was basically the three uses of the law. That was a part mm-hmm. of the, and that's definitely in the nineteen forty one catechism. I mean, this is kind of perennial Lutheran language in my mind, at least, to say the three uses of the law of. Um, you know that we get that we get we get the mirror curb rule guide sort of sort of language mm-hmm. that we we know this stuff, yeah. But I feel like when I was in seminary, there started to be some real questioning on whether that was helpful language, and what's the what does that mean to say use of the law versus function of the law or something else. Because the word use suggests, well, someone is using this and I, the preacher, must be using the law in a certain application or using the law in a certain way, whereas function can be, well, the law functions. The law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit functions in a certain way. It doesn't put the focus on the preacher and how he's dividing it. Right. Is that, is that where you're going? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the question. Use obviously mm-hmm. implies a user. Mm-hmm. And so we have to ask the question – of am I the as the preacher, am I the user here? Am I the one that when I sit down to write a sermon, do I write do I write it with kind of in my mind? All right, so my discussion about the law here and this aspect of the text, um, my intention is that this is going to restrain outward acts of evil. Mm-hmm. First use of the law. Yeah. Or that this is going to convict the right. old man and drive me to despair of my own work, second use. Or that this is going to guide me in my life as a Christian, third use. Can I do that as a preacher? Do I have the right and or ability? And can I even prevent myself from thinking that way? That might be an interesting question too. You know, I, I think it's one of those things is that – I don't think we should be all that concerned about it. I think that the let let God use the law. We should preach the law. We should be concerned that we preach the law. But I might I might actually say, you know what? I'm going to be crafting this sentence because depending on which function slash use you have in mind, your sentence may come out differently. Right? You know, exactly. I, I, but that's fine. It, let the Holy Spirit just say you're trying to. Uh, curb some kind of behavior that you're seeing, you know, and, and, uh, or, you know, but it's going to come across as condemnatory. Let the Holy Spirit kind of work on that. But I think about like with my, with my son being a parent, there are times when I give him exhortation, you know, do, you know, behave in a certain way, be home in a certain time. I want you to do this. I'm not telling him that necessarily because I'm trying to make him feel bad. It may make him feel bad. Right. Uh, but I'm not necessarily and trying to make it him sometimes it should feel, make him feel bad. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying is that, you know what, I think more than one thing can happen at one time. 
and I might be trying to g- genuinely exhort him. Um, other times I might be trying to make him feel guilty as a parent. You know, so I think if you put it in that context, you know, it does – it looks I think a little clearer. I say just preach the law. Use, use it in a way that makes sense based on the text that you have in front of you and – I don't know why we I, – I know we do but – and I'm no different than everyone else. But sometimes maybe we just get a little too concerned about the nuts and bolts and the – you know, we get stuck in the weeds. Let, yeah. Let, oh, right. Know. No question. And I think yeah. that's what's happening to an extent. Sure. Well, and I, I like the uh, I like the family analogy. Um let me take let me take what I would what I would consider one of the kind of classic pastor analogies with this. All right, so I see in my congregation that there is a particular sin that seems like it is manifesting itself. Okay, and and I'll just pick one. It's not it's not random, but rel- but let's say relatively common. Let's say that I think that my congregation is engaging in gossip okay. in a way that is that is unhealthy. And so when I am preaching the law in this context, I'm going to be preaching about how gossip is gossip is a sin. It's a violation of the eighth commandment. I'm not putting the best construction on things. I am uh, I and one of my goals as the pastor <laughs> very simply is I don't want people to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? I mean that's that's uh-huh. pretty obvious, I think. Uh-huh. Um and so in in that sort of three uses language, that would be first use, right? Curbing or restraining outward acts of evil. However, one of my goals at the very same time is going to be to convict them of their sinfulness and to draw drive them to contrition so that they sure. repent of their sins and receive receive the gospel. And that those two are not um they're not antithetical. They they go together. And at right. this and at the exact same time, I am informing them of, of who Christ is, how Christ uh always speaks, um, puts the best construction on everything, if you will, and and that and that, that is how I ought to be as a Christian. On you know, this upcoming Sunday, for instance, the text uh, the epistle is from Ephesians 4. I think it's this coming Sunday, yeah, um, where you get the walk worthy of the calling in which you have been called, etc. Um, so you get that same kind of talk of be who you are mm-hmm. and and that I can see that very concretely when I speak of a specific sermon like uh, like gossip. Now, I may have different intentions in my language in different ways. At different times, but right, you're exactly right. right. Whether the person, whether that restrains outward acts of evil at a given time, or convicts, or informs, I don't know. Yeah. And and, and I have no control. Right, and right, and I have no control over how the hearer is going to receive it. Mm-hmm. And if I start to think of preaching the law as my way of manipulating the hearer then i then i am on very dangerous uh, i i think that as a preacher i'm on very dangerous territory and maybe that's a part of the challenge of of christian preaching is 
what is the relationship between Christian preaching and persuasive preaching? Yeah. I'm with you. I, I, you know, I think that the, we, that's why I'm saying, you know, we shouldn't be so caught up in the weeds. Just kind of let it happen. And, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do. The Holy Spirit's going to use the word. What I kind of get concerned about is when people do kind of fixate on, okay, you know, I'm going to be exhorting now. I'm going to admonish. This is going to be, or I'm going to be encouraging good works. And that's what I'm doing. And this is important. You have to do it this way. And or someone else saying, you know, the own no, that's illegitimate. Uh, you simply must be about blasting people with condemnation. And in a way, not acknowledging, you know, the word antinomian gets used. And I don't think that's quite accurate. I don't think we have a lot of antinomians in our midst, those who are against the the law. But I think we still do have some kind of difference of how to, how to do this, you know, sure. what, what role does it play and how, to, how do we actually preach the law? And I haven't, I will, I will say, you know, there, this is kind of an internet discussion amongst some pastors right now, and I've kind of sure. been avoiding it. Um, and, you know, it's possible I could sit down and read, read pastor sermons of different pastors and kind of compare. I'm trying not to get in there. It's always a little tricky when we start to evaluate each other's sermons, which is fine. It's legitimate to do that. but some degree. To some degree. To some I degree. think that if you're not there, I mean, I think just pulling a sermon off the internet, you know, if there's rank heresy in it, if there's something that's just, you know, quite obviously wrong, right. but, you know, we tend to pull things apart and nitpick. And there may be some things that are wrong. I'm not. I haven't. I haven't looked at the sermons in question, or sure. you know, if there are any specific ones. Right. Right. But um, but I th- I just am very cautious, and I th- that's what I would recommend our brothers to be is cautious when you start to evaluate each other's sermons, and there's especially if something can be a bit different from how you might deliver the sermon. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to sound too wishy washy. Right. Well, and I don't think that this is a matter of wishy washy. Um. Let the record show that I don't think Scott is wishy-washy. Thank you. If you think Scott is wishy-washy, <laughs> yeah, you can email write. us at feedback at the crux of the matter dot net and I would encourage you to do so. Um, but what but what I would say, however, is that no sermon in written form is a sermon. The sermon right. takes place in a specific context with specific place, specific people, specific history and background. Uh, as as we talked about a little bit last week in the context um, most often now, at least for me, in the context of the Eucharist. Um, and so there are all of these things in place and how it is heard is going to depend on the space and the time and all those sort of things. So while that is not everything, it is something and and I am very – reticent to uh to to sort of arbitrarily or quickly pass judgment on my brother pastors because I am not in their midst I am not one of their sheep and every congregation has a personality yep if you think if you think of a congregation as a singular singular person you know they have different education levels they have different interests and talents in their in their midst they're different sizes 
there may be some that has that's predominantly retirees and others that are predominantly you know, have a lot of families with small children. You know, there, it, it, every congregation has its own personality. And just as when you're speaking to an individual, how you speak and how you you know describe something is going to differ a little bit if you're talking to someone that's got a PhD and is skeptical and you know you have to really have right. your sources down or if, if it's going to be someone who has a simpler faith you know and and you can you can you know maybe more of a childlike faith you're going to just approach things differently not that you cater the message so to speak but that you deliver it in a way that's suitable for the hearer and I don't know your congregation and and so you know maybe you deliver it a little differently than I would. I just have I just recommend that we be very careful to do that. And unless you know once you do that baby, you know be ready for it to come back <laughs> be on. Be ready you. for it. You bet. <laughs> yeah. And of uh, course, you know, we live in a time where uh, many sermons are quite accessible. Um mm-hmm. you know my sermons are put on YouTube just about yeah. every single week. And yeah. so if one wanted to go back and sort of parse out all of my sermons for the last four years, you could probably find 175 sermons. Yeah. And I am absolutely confident that some of them are lousy sermons. Sure, I, sure. We, I mean, because we're human. Me too. And, yeah. and, and, and so that there somehow has to be that. Like, that's probably, I don't know. I think, I think we probably beat that, beat that enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that uh, use and use and function thing, I think, is worth worth exploring. Um, another question that that I think may be worth a few minutes of conversation on our part, at least, is the question of what do what do people mean when they say that a sermon has too much law, not enough law, too much gospel, or not enough gospel? What does that actually mean? And I don't know about you, but I hear that kind of language quite a lot that, uh, you know, this this person or that person doesn't have enough law or too much law, um, this this kind of thing. But what are people actually trying to get at in there, I think, yeah. is a really worthy question. Well, I think a couple things. One is we we shouldn't try to quantify the law and the gospel. Yep. You know, I can count the number of words. I can remember one of my professors whom you also had, Kurt Marcourt, in one class addressing this ex- exact question. Yep. And he and he said, you know, you can preach a sermon where 99% of the words are law, but if it's the right 1% is the gospel, it can save it can save people's lives, right? I mean, so I mean, and it can and the other way around. You can you can have one statement of law in a in a long sermon, but one statement of law may be all you need if it's the right statement. Right, and so it's we don't want to. We have to again go back to the contextual thing and what is the what is this congregation experiencing? What are they What do they need? They need both, and the gospel shall predominate. And I just hope when I preach that people that what they come away with is not a feeling of wrath and judgment that may have happened over the course of the 20 minutes but that what they come away with is a, a sense that they've been cleansed and redeemed and forgiven right right yeah. well and what that, about you i mean what do you think that means well i as often as not what i what i really wonder about is when you get those sort of that that kind of nice quantification language 
if if what is really going on is that whoever is making the judgment is basically saying, I needed more law at this time or I needed more gospel at this time. Or my neighbor needed more law. <laughs> right, exactly. Or or um, whomever I was thinking ill thoughts of at that moment, <laughs> I really wish that they could have heard this or that. Yeah, yeah sure. That's that's mm-hmm. exactly right. Um, and and so at one part, I I fully I I am very suspicious about the about the quantification, and that and that what that's trying to get at is. Is may not even be a critique of the sermon itself, but of the of the critiquer, that that kind of stuff. Uh, that sure. would be that would be one part, and and another part may that what that may actually be getting at is not. And and I'm not I don't know I'm I'm just thinking out loud here. I wonder sometimes if what that is a critique of is how clearly the preacher has presented his mm-hmm. case. Sure, because you can have a sermon that has that has a, a great law, great gospel in it, but if it is if it is preached in a way that obfuscates the point, mm-hmm. then doesn't matter, and the and the hearer just isn't going to isn't going to be able to receive it. I I know that for myself, my preaching is dramatically simpler today than it was yeah. 15 years ago. Same here. Same it is here. much simpler. And I don't think that that's because I've become a simpleton. I think that that's I think that that's because my understanding of how people receive and and the amount that they are able to receive at one time and kind of the uh the the strength of receiving that has has shifted and my preaching is less informational didactic than it mm-hmm. once was than it once was too now right at the same time i've probably given something up in making the preaching less didactic and more and and more charismatic more more absolution sort of language to get at what we yeah. we talked about last week but yeah. um but that may be another question that's worth that's worth talking about. I think so. I know that my preaching has shifted over the years in the same way, I hope, or at least it, I, I believe it has. Um, I think sometimes as a young preacher, we try to say everything we know on a certain topic in, in right. this sermon, and we want to get it crammed in. And it may be in a, in a, certain, a, a certain approach, it might be excellent, but it may still totally go over people's heads. And in, sure. in that case, have you, have you really done your job? Sure. And, well, and, and that's and you think about, think about this in terms of some of um, pastoral formation and preparation mm-hmm. where in the, in the ideal or in the best context, a man goes to the seminary and he's going to spend three years uh, going to chapel basically every day. Mm-hmm. And the the context in that chapel is you're going to have mostly faculty, some pastors, and an occasional student preaching. And their hearers are going to be basically professors and graduate level students. Yeah. That's their that that is the congregation in that place. Well, yeah, I think right. that that creates some rather interesting challenges when you go from there to St. Aloysius Lutheran Church in Podunk, North Dakota. 
Um, because the sermons that I have been hearing over and over and over again are not the same as what I'm going to be doing there. I don't mean that to say that that the sermons need to be dumbed down because that's not that's not the point. But there is definitely a sense where where seminary life can lead to uh, a bit uh, a sort of over intellectualizing of the faith. Definitely a danger there. I think. That, yes. You know, oh, if sure. any, anyone who doesn't see that has not spent much time in a seminary, in my experience. Yeah. yeah good point. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I think that it would be a benefit to us since we've spent a couple of weeks talking about preaching the law. We should talk about preaching the gospel. Absolutely. That so, sounds like a plan. Yeah. So I think that's a reasonable um, topic for us to discuss maybe in the next week or two. Uh, in the meantime, though, we can we can move on to uh, kind of rounding out our uh, our discussion for this week. You can find the show notes for this episode at thecruxofthematter.net slash podcast slash 28. And I would encourage you to go so. You'll have uh, uh, notes to any uh, conversations, some of these books we've talked about and other things, and I would uh, hope that you can do so. I'd also encourage you to consider sharing some of those as well. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, StumbleUpon, Google+, you know, Stone Tablet, whatever it is that you use. Uh, that would be uh, that would be very helpful to us as well, and uh, send us feedback as much as you can. So that's a good Absolutely. thing. All right. Um, so Scott, what's bringing you joy this week? Pray. Tell. I I had to think for a few minutes before we started recording because I wasn't sure. I've been very busy, but I uh, I'm not going to go with a book, and I'm not going to go with a gadget. I'm going to go with a documentary. All right. I ha- yeah, I have, those. I, I have lately started to um, really appreciate a good documentary and I've been watching a number of them and one that I think our listeners will find interesting and I don't know how easily it is to access this. I got this through – we have a subscription to something called HBO Now. Right. It's – it's not you know you don't get the full full treatment of HBO but you can still get to see some of HBO original stuff right and there's an HBO documentary that I don't think is on Netflix yet or Amazon or anything like that HBO documentary called Going Clear and it's it's I think about 2 hours long and it's all about Scientology and just Ooh. really unpacks it and opens it up and I think that um, not that we in, confront lots of Scientologists every day, but it is a it is a cultic religion that gets a lot of press and gets a lot of attention. No, oh, right, and it's sort of the Hollywood cult. It very much is, and and there and there are. I mean, I have seen, I've driven past Scientologist churches. I mean, they do they do exist right. out here, and um, so anyway, I found it to be just a tremendously. Um, informative, and I've read a bit about about Scientology. And sure. So anyway, I, I I thought HBO usually does a really good job when they do documentaries. You know, the quality of production is going to be high, right, and they take right. on a controversial subject and they do it with I thought fearlessness. So I was hmm. I, I enjoyed it. Going I clear, good. Oh, that's a great that's a great pick. I was sitting in Panera last last week, probably writing a sermon. Or thinking about writing a sermon or wishing I was writing a sermon. <laughs> and uh, while I was sitting there in my collar, I had someone um, someone come up to me and ask if I was a uh, – uh, if, if, if I was a pastor 
you know, I'm always tempted to say uh, no. <laughs> yeah. But right. sitting there in a collar, but you know, I'm yes, a but uh, right, but um, but when he asked me, he also asked me in sign language, uh, and I said yes. And and he's and you know and he asked if my congregation had any any ministry to uh, to to the deaf, and, uh, and and I said no, not right now. I'm certainly open to it, but uh, just you know we haven't we haven't had that. And uh, and he goes and he proceeds to tell me about how he's a member of this great this great church that has all kind of deaf ministry and that he's a deaf pastor at his at his at his church and uh, and that he really hopes that I'll stop by and see him sometime. And uh, and then he said, and and you can find out more about my church by going to jw.com. <laughs> so I was proselytized wow. by a a, uh, yeah. a a deaf Jehovah's Witness pastor at a wow. Panera, and I and I thought, hmm, isn't that interesting? Yeah. That that yeah, that is interesting. I can't say I've ever had an experience quite like that. No, me neither. But uh, so it goes. That's uh, California for you, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my pick, since uh, since you picked a documentary, my pick is a book, and okay. it's a book that's very appropriate to the topic that we are discussing. Uh, the name of the book is "On the Law" <laughs> by yeah, Johann Gerhard. Yeah, this is a part of the uh, theological commonplaces series that Concordia Publishing House has been producing. Ten years, maybe eight years, probably eight years, something like that. Um, and and so this is a multi multi volume series, and I, I just got it, so I have really leafed through it and a little bit more. But I'm really looking forward into digging into it. Uh, the editor for this series is someone whom we know very well, um, Dr. Ben Mays. Uh, yeah. doc, Dr. Mays, uh, many moons ago, was my student worker. When uh, I worked in admission at Concordia Theological Seminary, and uh, and and a good friend, uh, a great guy, and he's been an editor for at Concordia Publishing House for about I don't know eight or nine years. Uh, he edits not only this series but also the um, American edition of Luther's works that uh, uh, CPH has been in the process of adding. I want to say twenty volumes, twenty more volumes to the American edition. And he is the uh, he is the editor for that at uh, at CPH. So uh, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to be digging on that a little bit. It should be fun. Yeah, have you you haven't had a chance to read much of it yet? No, not a whole lot. A, a part of a, a part of what it does, just in just in looking at it, and I find this quite a so so the uh, the full title is on the law and on the ceremonial and forensic laws. So a part of what Gerhard does with this is he really goes through and parses parses the Decalogue, but then he goes through and parses out the purpose behind all of the ceremonial laws and, and you know, the Levitical laws, the priestly laws, etc. And, and so I think it'll make an interesting sort of sidebar or side commentary to um, Dr. Kleinig's Leviticus commentary, which is, which is another great, great volume in kind of understanding the law. I mean, we tend to think of the law simply as the Ten Commandments, um, but as the term is used in the Old Testament, it, there's an awful lot more to it than that. And as often as not, those ceremonial laws were really there pointing to Christ. And if we miss that point, we are really missing the boat. So I'm looking forward to it. it should be fun. Neat. Yeah, yeah. It's neat. Indeed, so my friend, I think that'll do us. Do you have anything else for our dear listeners for this week? 
No, thanks for listening. We appreciate the mail that we get and hope you will send us your comments. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, everyone, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. And there we go.